Welcome to The Humanist Report. I'm Mike Figueredo. On today's show, we're going to be discussing Bernie Sanders, of course, because I think that it's safe to say that this is more so the Bernie Sanders report than it is the Humanist Report. And guess what? I'm 100% okay with that because Bernie Sanders is a politician whose speech really resonates deeply with me and all of you guys as well because a lot of you like hearing about Bernie Sanders. Also, we're going to be discussing transgender issues as well as an awesome story wherein the internet trolled Donald Trump mercilessly. Uh, so you're going to want to stay tuned for that. Now, first and foremost, before we begin, I really want to welcome my new subscribers and thank all of you. Um, there's been such overwhelming positivity on my channel. Some of you have said really, really nice things about the channel. One of you even went so far as to say that uh, the human support inspires you. And look, that's something that I feel really, uh, I'm very thankful for. I'm thankful for all of the support. I mean, look, we've had some conservative trolls here and there, but Overall, uh, we've had a lot of positivity, and I think that's phenomenal. I love hearing your guys' feedback. Um, and look, welcome to the channel. Um, there's going to be a lot of great things to come. So let's go ahead and get right into our very first story. During Hillary Clinton's meeting with congressional Democrats, Bernie Sanders decided to hold an impromptu meeting to call out Hillary Clinton. He says, Secretary Clinton and I disagree on a number of issues. Three decades of deals, including the North American Free Trade Agreement, which is NAFTA, signed by former President Clinton, have been disastrous for American workers. Secretary Clinton, I believe, has a different view on that issue. Now, when it comes to the Keystone XL pipeline, the $15 minimum wage, and the $1 trillion infrastructure spending proposal that Bernie has suggested, um, he states, I think the Secretary has not been quite so clear on those issues. <laughs> Damn, see what he's doing here is he's calling out her record on progressive issues. What Hillary Clinton is trying to do right now is she's trying to present herself to the Democratic base as a progressive, but we all know that she's more of a centrist, and when it comes to foreign policy, she's more center-right. So Bernie Sanders is rightfully calling her out on her progressive record because, look, she has the name recognition, so all she has to do is start copying Bernie Sanders, and that's going to be a huge problem for him. So what he's doing by calling her out is a very, very good thing, and I think it's going to really get his name out there as well, because he doesn't really want to play dirty, he doesn't want to call out his opponents, but it's something that you got to do, and I think that he's slowly but surely realizing that. Now, as for her actual visit with Democrats, The Hill explains, The Democrats did not appear to press Clinton on some of the topics mentioned by Sanders in his public comments. Neither trade nor Keystone were mentioned in the Progressive Caucus meeting, and that's according to Mike Reponda. And although Clinton told lawmakers she's committed to hiking the minimum wage, they didn't push her on the $15 rate. Representative Ruben Gallego says, We didn't get into specifics about a number. Well, of course you didn't. You wouldn't want to help the American people too much, will you? I mean, what your real goal is, is to appease your corporate donors. So even though you call yourself a progressive and you're part of the Progressive Caucus, you're not really a true progressive. You're only in favor of progressing what your donors want, which is what will get you into office. So obviously it's something that you want too. So now, Representative Juan Vargas was quoted saying, I'm ready for Hillary, baby. Well, sure. I mean, you want your establishment candidate. You don't want someone such as Bernie Sanders, who's not part of the establishment, to threaten the status quo. You want to maintain everything the same way as it is. You want money in politics because you got a really nice array of donors who helped you get elected so long as you do what they want, so long as you give them their tax breaks, so long as you craft policy specifically for them while you completely ignore the needs of the American people. So here's the deal. 
all of these congressional Democrats, they're all scared of Bernie Sanders. See, he's not part of the establishment. Bernie Sanders is an anti-establishment candidate, and this is something that scares them as he gets more and more popular. As he gains more and more percentage points in the polls, this is really, really scaring not just Democrats, but Republicans as well, because Bernie Sanders is going to go in there and kind of blow up their whole game, metaphorically speaking, that is. Uh, so he's going to go in there, he's going to change everything. He wants to get money out of politics. He wants free universal health care for all citizens. This is something that they don't want. They don't want that for the American people. So Bernie, you're doing a good thing. I think this is phenomenal. I really like that he held this impromptu press conference because look, you want to get elected, you got to play hard. You really got to play hard. You got to critique your opponents sometimes. You don't have to get completely dirty as they do. You don't have to run the obnoxious attack ads, but what you really got to do is call them out on the substance of their policy positions. Hillary Clinton, you can say, yeah, I'm part, I want the minimum wage to go up, but she's not telling you that she probably only wants a $10 minimum wage, while Bernie wants a $15 minimum wage. Look, in almost all states, $10 is not a living wage. So if you really want the true progressive, you got to elect Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders, kudos to you, buddy. This is something that needed to be done, and I'm glad that you're doing it. The former Democratic member of the House, Anthony Weiner, who, unfortunately, you guys may remember as the individual who sent sexually explicit images of himself to multiple women, well, he wrote an article for Business Insider wherein he critiqued Bernie Sanders for really no reason. So in his article, he states, quote, I'm torn because I really don't understand what Bernie Sanders is doing. I have one major question for Bernie. What exactly does he think he's doing in a Democratic presidential primary? Why is he asking for the nomination of a party he always avoided joining? Now he adds, Our party needs a kick in the butt. Senator Elizabeth Warren, Paul Krugman, and John Stewart are currently the standard bearers for that sentiment. But Bernie Sanders? I just don't know. After a career of steadfastly insisting that the Democratic Party was not his home, now he wants to not only be a member of the party, but its standard bearer? What changed? If Bernie wants to lead this party, he needs to explain what he's doing there in the first place. Now, first and foremost, no, he does not have to explain what he's doing in the Democratic Party. This is a presidential election that's not about political parties. It's about the American people and who we want. Your party, the Democratic Party, guess what? You guys aren't entitled to uh, be in the White House, and neither is the Republicans. It's just the fact of the matter that we live in a two-party system, so one of you two parties are usually the ones who's in, the off in office. Critiquing him on that makes him look really ignorant. Now, second, um, the problem is that, as I stated, we do live in a two-party system. Now, there's something that he probably doesn't know about, but it's very, very popular. If you've ever taken a political science course, it's called Duverger's Law. Now, we live in a majoritarian system. Now, the way that our system is set up, well, it pushes down on the number of parties. See, what we have in the U.S. is a district magnitude of one. So now what that means is that in every district that you live in, you can only vote for one politician and only one politician will be elected. Now in proportional representation systems, well, Duverger's law says that more than two parties can be elected in these because they have higher district magnitudes. So if you live in a district where five politicians can be elected, well, you're not going to be forced to vote for your second or third choice. You could actually vote for your first choice, and there's still a possibility that that individual might get elected into office. So he doesn't know about this. I mean, it's practical for Bernie Sanders to run as a Democrat because, I mean, if he did choose to run as an independent, then he would be marginalized. He wouldn't be able to participate in debates, and he would really have no chance, and furthermore, even more problematic for progressives and even liberals 
Well, what's he going to do? He's going to split the base. So half of the Democratic side, who typically votes Democrat, is going to vote for Bernie, and the other half could vote for Hillary Clinton, let's just say, if he was uh, the third-party candidate. And that means a Republican gets in office. So he's doing it for pragmatic purposes, but Anthony Weiner knows this. So what he's trying to do is just find a way to critique Bernie Sanders. Now, Anthony Weiner even alluded to this. He says, quote, Is Bernie's newfound party affiliation just a practical decision to run in a party that can win, rather than risk being a Nader-esque spoiler on a third-party line in November? That's a fair calculation, but doesn't it wipe away Bernie's three decades of standing as a principled socialist? Um, no. Because one, he's a social democrat. And two, that critique doesn't even make sense. What does his record have to do with anything? I mean, if you look at Bernie Sanders' voting record, it speaks for himself. You can go way back to the 1960s and see that he was a progressive back then, too, when he was championing the progressive cause. I mean, he led civil rights sit-ins back at the University of Chicago because he wanted to end segregation. He marched with Martin Luther King to end segregation. He was an avid LGBT rights activist in the 70s and in the 80s when that was political suicide. So his record stands by itself. Now, Bernie Sanders is the third most popular U.S. senator, and that's because he actually listens to the American people. So, what is Wiener's real problem? Well, he knows that Bernie Sanders running as a Democrat is practical, but Wiener's wife actually works for Hillary Clinton. So, he's biased. That's it. That's all it is. I mean, he even specified this before he started with the article. He says, well, my wife works for Hillary Clinton, so there's that. Well, so there's that. You just discredited yourself. You can't launch an attack against Bernie Sanders and say, well, I have this vested interest in this other candidate, so this is why I'm against Bernie Sanders. One, you just delegitimized yourself, and two, you've proven that you're not making sense because your argument is not really, it does make sense. It's not very strong. I wouldn't say that it's incoherent, but it's not something that I think will resonate with anybody. Um, so it doesn't matter what he thinks, really, because, I mean, he's already discredited himself, and what he says, it's not going to hurt Bernie Sanders. Nobody's going to think, oh, you know what? I think that I'm going to rethink my support for Bernie Sanders because that one politician who sent images of his penis to multiple women even though he's married, well, he says I should rethink Bernie Sanders and question his loyalty to the Democratic Party. Nobody's going to think that. Get over yourself. Nobody cares about the Democratic Party. I consider myself anti-establishment, although I am liberal, and typically my voting is in line with the Democratic Party. But guess what? That's because it's just really my second choice. I'm not voting for my first choice because if I do vote for who I really want, well, then that's going to be a wasted vote. See, that's the way that our political party system works. You have a choice between a lesser of two evils. You can either pick the individual who's driving the bus that is insane, or you could pick the individual who is suicidal. I'd rather have the person who's insane than the individual who's suicidal, which is the Republican. So... Anthony Weiner, dude, I hate bringing up the ad hominem attack on him and stating that he, he had this whole sexting scandal, but look, it, he's really discredited himself, so I don't know why he's trying to, in turn, discredit Bernie Sanders. I used to really like Anthony Weiner. I thought he was a phenomenal politician. He was a pseudo-progressive, but I mean, this really shows that he wants so bad to get back into that uh, to the political elite. He so badly wants to be part of the establishment that he'll do anything and even throw Bernie Sanders on the bus in order to kind of look at the other political elites, such as Hillary Clinton, and say, did I do a good job? Did I do a good job, Hillary? Do you like me now? Do you like me now? Can I be part of the political elite? Can I maybe be on your, uh, your committee or um, be one of your advisors? No, Anthony Wieners. This is proof that Anthony Wieners is hashtag feeling the burn. I can't believe I just said hashtag. Fox News, once again, is trying to take on Bernie Sanders. 
There's no getting around it. The media just aren't taking Bernie Sanders seriously. Now, on the surface, that might seem flat wrong. After all, the Vermont senator is suddenly getting all kinds of attention, stories in major newspapers, television coverage as he draws big crowds in places like Madison, Wisconsin, as he raised $15 million in the last quarter, about a third of Hillary Clinton's haul, and as he obviously seems to be tapping into something and resonating with the liberal base of the Democratic Party. Uh, a guy who was initially viewed as a, kind of a fringe candidate, a 73-year-old socialist with no hope of making a serious showing, uh, is shaking things up quite a bit. Here is why I say media not taking him seriously. Because if we were, if we were treating Sanders as anything other than entertainment, um, we would be holding him to a lot tougher standard. Uh, the things that he says, uh, which obviously uh, warm liberal hearts, uh, when he talks about you know a huge increase in taxes, when he talks about breaking up the big banks, when he talks about a single-payer Medicare-like healthcare system for everybody. Now, if we really thought this guy could be the Democratic nominee, those kinds of uh, positions would be subject to a lot of media analysis and scrutiny. But go beyond that. These freelance articles that he wrote, some of them 40 years ago, in which Bernie Sanders says things like, cancer is, cause, cancer is caused by not having enough orgasms, that a lack of sex can lead to cancer, leaving aside the earlier blip over uh, his writing about uh, female sexual fantasies and involving gang rape and that sort of thing. Yes, it was 30, 40 years ago, but if a serious, imagine any other candidate in the race, any of the 42 Republican candidates in the race, uh, having once written that, what a bombshell that would have been. So bottom line here is there are also other weaknesses in Bernie Sanders' candidacy that are not really being looked at very hard, except for a couple of stories, such as he has virtually no following in the African-American community. Uh, he represents a pretty uh, predominantly white state. Uh, and doesn't have much black support in his campaign, nor does he seem to be reaching out to those communities. Here's what's really going on. The press doesn't want to spoil the fun. We want to cover Bernie as a kind of phenomenon because that creates at least the illusion of a race against Hillary Clinton. At the same time, we don't want to look too closely at his positions or the controversies or the things that he has said or has said or has written that would uh, cause a, a huge explosion if it were any other candidate, because that spoils the fun. Nobody wants to knock him out too early. Now, I'm not defending this. I think if uh, given the, the, the reaction uh, that Sanders has gotten, that we ought to take him seriously and we ought to cover him with the same aggressiveness as we cover Hillary or any other candidate. That doesn't seem to be happening. It might change, I suppose, um, in, in the Hillary camp. Uh, seems to be uh, kind of downplaying him. Yes, we could have a tough time in Iowa and or New Hampshire, but Hillary, as you'll notice when she's asked about Bernie Sanders, as she was in that CNN interview, not mentioning him by name, not trying to give him any oxygen. So I think that we can't have it both ways. Either Sanders is doing really well, deserves coverage, and therefore deserves the same scrutiny that we give other presidential candidates, or he's just an entertaining factor, in which case we ought not to give him all that much attention. So he says, if we took Bernie serious, the media would have to scrutinize his positions. Now, here's why they don't want to scrutinize his positions. A, well, they'd realize that his policy pr proposals actually work because taxing the rich stimulates the economy and universal health care reduces deaths. 
And um, two, this would contradict the failed policies of establishment Democrats and Republicans, who the media is in bed with. So they don't want their buddies to be contradicted by Bernie's actual, real, substantive policy proposals that will actually fix the problems with America. So now, he can't say much about Bernie Sanders' policies because they're hugely popular. So what does he do instead? Well, he tries to assassinate Bernie's character by bringing up a debunked study that Bernie cited decades and decades and decades ago. Because, I mean, look, if you can't critique them on their policy substance, well, then you gotta go for their character, and that's what they're doing. This is a character assassination attempt, and it's very, very overtly obvious. Now, he also says, this would have been a bombshell if any other candidate had written this, which he's referring to um, Bernie's citing of the study that says that orgasms can reduce the risk of cancer. Really? Because... Your guys' standard for bombshells is really weird then, because we just found out that Rick Santorum, Ted Cruz, uh, Rand Paul, well, they were accepting donations from, from white supremacists. Scott Walker recently implied that gay men are pedophiles. Mike Huckabee called for an American theocracy. Jeb Bush has Paul Wolfowitz as one of his advisors. Now, this is the guy who helped start the Iraq war. I don't know if you remember him or not, but he's the guy whose policy idea, which was to invade Iraq, it led to the death of 200,000 people. So I don't think he's going to remember these things, but the fact of the matter is that if these things aren't bombshells, but Bernie Sanders citing a stupid study is, well then, I don't know what your standard of judgment is there, and I don't know how you apply it, because you seem very inconsistent. Why aren't you attacking your buddies on those issues? I think that's a lot more controversial than somebody citing a study 40 years ago, which, by the way, is double the age of most of us who will be voting in the upcoming election. So, nice try there. Now, I want to go over one more point. He says, quote, We should be covering him with the same aggressiveness as any other candidate. Well, have you not been watching the mainstream media? Because I've covered multiple segments where they just try to demolish his character. I mean, they are covering Bernie Sanders with the same aggressiveness, if not more, because they don't even take him seriously at all. And I think that's that's a really great way to kind of dismiss a candidate. Greg Gutfeld recently called Bernie Sanders a dope and said that he's so nutty that kids should be allergic to him. Come on, come on. So, of course, they're scrutinizing Bernie Sanders probably more than any other candidate. But what's the takeaway? Look, they're scared of Bernie Sanders. There's not a single other candidate that actually threatens the establishment. But look, it doesn't matter if they're Republican or Democrat. At the end of the day, the mainstream media outlets, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, well, they all want an establishment candidate because they're all in bed with the establishment candidates due to money in politics. You see, when the Koch brothers fund Jeb Bush's campaign or a lot of other senatorial races or gubernatorial races, guess who benefits from those political attack ads? CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. They benefit the most. They get all that money. So do you think they want an anti-establishment candidate who's actually going to get money out of politics? Of course they don't, because this is going to threaten their bottom line. Bernie is a direct threat to their business, and business as usual will change if Bernie Sanders is elected, and they're scared of him. They're scared of this. So if the Democrats and Republicans, if they actually want to galvanize the people like Bernie Sanders has been doing, well then I have some advice for you. Um, maybe adopt policy proposals that we actually want, maybe not be so corrupt. There's an idea, because there's a reason why Bernie Sanders has so much momentum, and he's so hugely popular right now. 
It's because he's not corrupt. He's maybe one of three or four non-corrupt politicians in Congress. It's because he, he's proposing things that we actually want. We want universal health care. We want to raise to the minimum wage. We want to get money out of politics. Even a majority of Republicans want that. So look, this again is another stupid attempt to discredit Bernie Sanders by using an ad hominem attack. Now we all do ad hominem attacks. I just recently attacked Anthony Weiner for sexting and try to discredit his character that way. But what I really just want to do is point out to you what the media tries to do and really illustrate or give you an example, moreover, that illustrates how they try to discredit politicians because the media really controls uh, the political narrative. If they want to, they can discredit a candidate. But seeing that they're not powerful enough to uh, discredit Bernie Sanders because he's so hugely popular and this is a grassroots effort, that scares them. And I love it. I love watching it unfold. Katrina Huevel, a journalist from The Nation, recently scolded a CNN host on Bernie Sanders and also critiqued the mainstream media. Take a look. If Donald Trump is the Republican story of the summer, then the Democratic story is probably Bernie Sanders. He's gone from, in some ways, a marginal candidate to serious contender in record time, doing better in polls and fundraising than most talking heads ever imagined he would. But has his insurgent campaign dodged the kind of scrutiny that candidates typically get? Does he have a media cheerleading section? Let me show you an example. A Sanders is on the cover of the latest issue of the liberal magazine, The Nation, interviewed by its Washington correspondent, John Nichols. The very same John Nichols who rousingly introduced Sanders at a rally earlier this month. Now, when I saw this, I couldn't help but think about Fox's Sean Hannity, who was barred from speaking at a Tea Party rally a few years ago. Fox did not want him doing that. To talk about that and Bernie Sanders more broadly, the editor and publisher of The Nation, Katrina Vandenfuvel, uh, joins me now here on the set. And Katrina, I don't want to perpetuate a false narrative. Uh, Sean Hannity and John Nichols are very different people. John is foremost a writer. Sean Hannity is foremost a, 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 a television yeah. host. But what, what's your reaction to the idea that, that someone who's interviewing Bernie Sanders should not be up on stage introducing Bernie Sanders? So first of all, The Nation has been upfront since we were founded 150 years ago, upfront about our values, our principles. We are independent. We have called it like it is. We have criticized Democratic candidates, presidents. Uh, and John Nichols has introduced Bernie Sanders for over 25 years. I mean, Bernie Sanders... But does that make it right? But, but let me just say, John Nichols was talking in that context about Wisconsin's tradition of progressivism, La Follette and others. He wasn't telling people how to think. He wasn't telling them how to vote. And in the cover story, the interview in The Nation, yeah. John Nichols pushes Bernie Sanders on issues of policing, on immigration, on issues he's not leading with because he's talking primarily about economic inequality in this country, how billionaires are controlling our politics. One thing I would say, Brian, yeah. is when you talk about going soft, I think it's important to look at the corporate media and how, it, how it, it has gone soft on what matters to millions of Americans. I like to say that too often the mainstream corporate media gives us a downsized politics of excluded alternatives. What do I downsized? mean? Downsized. What do you downsized. mean? Downsized. Bernie Sanders speaks for millions of Americans in this country. The issues he speaks to are tapping into anxieties, passions, 
about where this country is heading. Issues that are in essence mainstream, but for too long the corporate media has written them off as marginal. It, Bernie Sanders has been in Congress mm -hmm. since 1990. He was on Meet the Press for the first time last year. Let's John think about McCain that. John McCain sleeps year. at Meet the Press. <laughs> but, but also... But why it, do you think that is? Why is it that Sanders because, wasn't on Meet the Press, for example? Because there is a policing of the parameters of what is considered acceptable politics in this country. The gatekeepers too often will say, well, debt-free higher education, uh, defense cuts, cuts to the defense budget, tax hikes for the very wealthy. Even the New York Times last month had a story about how those issues might make Bernie Sanders unelectable. Why? Majorities of Americans are in sync with him on this issue. So I think, listen, we need strong coverage. On Monday, the nation has a piece about Bernie Sanders' stance on gun control. Hillary Clinton is teeing that up as an issue in this election. There are tough questions, and I don't think fairness means being uncritical, but I would submit that the corporate media has been unfair to the people of this country for too long by not giving them the full range of views that this country deserves to hear. And that's what I mean mm. by a downsized politics of excluded alternatives. So he's an, an insurgent candidate, but he is speaking about solutions. He's speaking about ideas that this country's hungry for. Mm. And the gatekeepers, Brian, I have to say, you know, the idea that he's, it's only two months out, right? So his name recognition, the media will play a big role. Will they give him the space, and not just as a foil to Hillary Clinton? Will they keep saying he's unelectable? Or will they give him and his issues the space? Because too often, as you well know, campaigns in this country are covered as a horse race. And the issues which Bernie Sanders wants to talk about desperately, running a serious campaign, talking about serious solutions, can that be heard in our system? Because to me, the measure of democracy is whether our elections become debates vibrant debates and whether campaigns lift up new ideas that people want to hear. So now before I discuss this video, I really wanted to clarify her statement. She constantly referred to the gatekeepers. Now really what she's talking about is the mainstream media because they actually control information. If they don't want something getting out to the American people, they can kill it by just not discussing it. Now the media is very very powerful. I mean, they can prime individuals and they can administer salience cues to actually influence what we think is more important and what's not important, such as Benghazi with Fox News, for example. Now, they are in effect in control of political dialogue in the U.S. With all the momentum that Bernie Sanders is gaining, well, they're realizing that they're slowly but surely losing control. So this is something that absolutely terrifies them, and I absolutely love watching this. It's great. Now, what I thought was really great about this um, interview is that Katrina, she had, so, she issued so many implicit put-downs. I mean, she basically called the host and his network inept, saying that they're not doing their jobs, which is 100% true. And I think that's really great because the media, they don't realize, um, well, or maybe they do realize and they're just not being open about it, but they don't realize that they're not doing their job. I mean, if you really want to um, do your job and you want to be objective and you want the stone-cold facts, well then, instead of critiquing Bernie Sanders and saying, look, he's just an extremist, you take each of his views one by one and you would disaggregate them, you'd break them apart, you'd see, well, look, what would the effect be? What do the studies say if we actually adopt universal health care or otherwise known as a single-payer system or Medicaid for all? Um, or Medicare for all, more specifically. So they, one, need to examine that from a political science perspective, and two, what they need to do is they need to look at public opinion polls. Believe it or not, we actually live in a democracy. I know it's really diminished, and that our democracy 
it's not as good as it used to be. But the fact of the matter is that we are a democracy. So what matters when you talk about policies is what the American people thinks. Now look, I just did a video a couple weeks back where I looked at 10 of Bernie Sanders' positions, and I also looked at the American people's positions, and on every single one of them, he had support from the American people. So it is the case that the media isn't doing their job in trying to discredit Bernie Sanders and trying to make it appear as though the nation is not objective when they're actually doing their job because they're being objectives. They're just saying that the facts line up with what Bernie Sanders is saying. You can do that and not be biased. I mean, you don't have to pretend to be neutral and say, look, we're directly in the middle, okay? We think that um, there are two equal sides when it comes to climate change, even though 97% of scientists, actually 97 to 98%, they're all in agreement that anthropogenic climate change is a reality. So you can't frame this debate to appear neutral in order to be perfectly even-handed to both sides. There's not two equal sides on a lot of issues, and that's what they don't realize. So the fact that um, this uh, journalist went on there and just schooled this host on Bernie Sanders and uh, how the mainstream media isn't doing their jobs, man, it, it was awesome to watch. And I really um, I want to applaud Katrina for doing this because she... That was awesome. That was boss. On his interview on Face the Nation, Bernie Sanders had this to say about Pope Francis. Senator, you mentioned that you agree with the Pope on the climate change question. I was wondering, do you agree with him on his harsh condemnation of capitalism? I think what the Pope has been saying in a very profound and deep way is that casino-type capitalism is causing devastating problems, not only in terms of our climate, but in terms of income and wealth inequality. He talks about the fact that all over the world, for example, we are ignoring the needs of senior citizens who often in our country and around the world are lonely, don't have the money they need for medicine or to heat their homes or to eat the food, buy the food that they need to survive. He has talked about an issue, John, that I am talking about a lot, and that is young people throughout the world. In our country today, we have youth unemployment for white kids who graduate high school of 33%, Hispanic kids 36%, African-American kids 51%. And what the Pope is saying, there's something wrong internationally, where almost all of the new wealth in this world is going to people on the top, and so many other people are falling by the wayside. So yes, I think that Pope Francis has played an extraordinarily, extraordinary role he has been a voice of conscience all over the world, speaking out for those people who don't have a voice, those people who are suffering. And what he is saying is enough is enough. Money cannot be the god of life. We have got to look at our kids, look at those people who are hurting. We've got to come together to create a new world and not a world in which a handful of people have so much wealth and so many other people are suffering. I am a great fan of Pope Francis. Overall, I agree 100% with Bernie on this issue. I think that the Pope is really fantastic. However, I probably wouldn't take my compliments of the Pope as far, only because, for one specific reason, it's because the Pope still isn't very good on social issues. Although he's more better when it comes to not judging gay people. He still is, by and large, homophobic. And he's also anti-choice when it comes to women's rights, more specifically, their reproductive rights. So I think that this is still problematic, but... Compared to Pope Benedict, this is like night and day. The difference is just crazy. Now, the reason why I'm covering this video is because there's something that I really wanted to 
bring up. Now, that's the fact that, look, Bernie Sanders currently, his biggest uphill battle is name recognition. He needs to really get his name out there, specifically to non-white voters. Now, how can that happen? How, what can boost his campaign? Well, Pope Francis. I mean, if Bernie Sanders uh, says really nice things about the Pope, maybe Pope Francis will hear him and then endorse Bernie Sanders, which would be huge. I mean, if the Pope knows who you are, then um, the world is going to know who you are if the Pope mentions you. But here's the reason why I, uh, I think this may be problematic, and I'm kind of torn on the issue. Well, first and foremost, yes, I do want Bernie Sanders to win by any means necessary, and I think that the Pope endorsing him would be something that is fantastic. I don't even know if he endorses American politicians, but I mean, even to just uh, give him a thumbs up, give him a nod, I mean, anything would help. But on the other side of the coin here, I am 100% uh, glued to the idea of separation of church and state. I don't think religion should have any place in politics. I don't think religious figures should really be getting involved with uh, politics. But I mean, at the same time, though, he's really helped the political progressive cause. I mean, he's talking about climate change. He's talking about unfettered capitalism. That's really just greed. Um, so I think these are really important issues, and he has a lot of sway among Catholic people, which is a huge percentage of the human population. So Pope Francis, admittedly, is causing me to have cognitive dissonance because it's really been the case for a while that religious people weren't saying very nice things about marginalized groups. He wasn't saying nice things about um, really greedy politicians, but now that that's the case, I kind of feel that I might be a hypocrite because I'm saying, yeah, this is awesome. I'm a cheerleader of Pope Francis, even though I'm an atheist. But at the same time, I mean, should religious figures really be getting involved in political issues? I don't know. Am I willing to jeopardize my principles for that? Maybe I am, because, I mean, I want change to happen in America. We really do need a political revolution. Not a violent revolution, just a social political revolution. And Bernie Sanders is going to help facilitate that. Now, if Pope Francis can really help him with this cause, am I in favor of that? I'm going to say yes, even though, admittedly, it does make me a hypocrite. So I'm curious to know what you guys think. Are you an atheist? How do you feel about uh, religion mixing with politics? And are you willing to let it slide if it's Pope Francis? Comment down below. After announcing his 2016 presidential bid, Donald Trump made some insidious comments about Mexican immigrants. And after that, he doubled down, tripled down, and even quadrupled down on them. Well, the internet responded as the internet does. They trolled him mercilessly with the hashtag TrumpYourCat meme. So it went viral almost immediately on Facebook and Twitter, and people on Facebook and Twitter posted pictures with their cats with Donald Trump's comb-over hairstyle. So here they are. <laughs> Alright, first one up. <laughs> this one is scarily accurate, because you've got the perfect color of uh, Donald Trump's hair, you've got the uh, perfect color of his very tan, like, orange-like skin with the uh, orange cap. Fantastic. I give it a 10 out of 10. Here's the next one. 10 out of 10. Another one. Perfect score. I just like the look on this cat's face. And then this one, who is not too amused with his owner. <laughs> um, we've got another orange cat. I think the orange cats really look the best as Donald Trump. And then we've got a dog entering the equation. But now my favorite is the guinea pig. <laughs>
So look, this is something that I think is awesome. If you say something stupid, the internet is going to respond as the internet always responds, and they are going to troll you mercilessly. See, Republicans, they always, um, I mean, this isn't necessarily related, but Republicans will come up with like a hashtag campaign, like Bobby Jindal recently did like a couple of weeks ago. He did like a, a type of ask me anything hashtag campaign, and guess what happened? Trolls hijacked it. They started asking him really questions that he probably didn't want to answer about his homophobia, about his horrific things that he said, about atheists and um, gay people and whatnot. So I think that it's funny that um, the internet always ends up trolling Republicans. And it really speaks to the fact that most people, they don't really agree with what you guys are saying. I mean, you make racist comments, there's going to be backlash. I mean, he's seen that there are business implications because it's definitely hurting his bottom line. His NBC show was canceled, The Apprentice, which I don't know how it was running for so long. It was a terrible, terrible show. Um, and really a lot of uh, stores are boycotting his products. So Donald Trump, if you say horrible things, you make racist comments, this is the consequence. And of all, this is the best consequence thus far that's come to fruition. Because, I mean, if you involve cats, it's already an automatic win for me. But if you involve putting hair on cats, hair that looks like Donald Trump's, it's absolutely brilliant. So what's the takeaway? The internet is taking Donald Trump's campaign about as serious as he is. So comment down below. I don't think you can post pictures on YouTube, but... If you can, like, link to certain pictures, link to your favorite, because I want more of this. I haven't looked at them all, but the ones that I saw made me crack up. So uh, comment down below with the link to your favorite picture of a trumped cat. The state of Oregon will soon allow 15-year-old transgender individuals to undergo sexual reassignment surgery without parental consent. As you may have suspected, uh, Fox News is not too happy about this. If you are now or have ever been a parent to a 15-year-old, you know just how impressionable and fickle they can be. Keep that in mind as we tell you about a shocking new policy in one western state that would allow 15-year-olds to have sex change procedures done without parents even knowing about it. Here's correspondent Dan Springer in Oregon. 15-year-olds in Oregon can't smoke, give blood, or get a tattoo, but now they can get drugs to suppress puberty and even a sex change operation without their parents' consent, and the government will pay for it. It is trespassing on the hearts, the minds, and the bodies of our children. They're our children. And for a decision, a life-altering decision like that to be done uh, unbeknownst to a parent or a guardian is it's mind-boggling. The decision was made by Oregon's Health Evidence Review Commission, or HERC. With no public debate, it began covering cross-sex hormones, puberty-suppressing drugs, and sex reassignment surgeries for Medicaid enrollees in January. A transgender activist says not requiring parental permission will save lives through suicide prevention. Parents may not be supportive. Um, they, they may not be in an environment where they feel uh, the parent will um, affirm their identity. The American Psychiatric Association classifies gender dysphoria as a mental disorder. A 2008 study concluded most children with gender dysphoria grow out of it after puberty. Johns Hopkins University was the first U.S. medical center to perform sex change operations, but stopped after studying the outcomes. Its longtime director of psychiatry calls Oregon's policy child abuse. We have uh, uh, a very radical and even mutilating treatment being offered to children without any evidence, any evidence 
that the long-term outcome of this side is be, would be good. We tried repeatedly to get an Oregon Health Authority official on camera to explain and defend the sex change policy, but they kept putting up roadblocks. In fact, one spokeswoman even lied to us about the medical director's work schedule. We eventually found her. Hey, Dr. Smith, can I ask a couple questions? The Oregon Health Authority can't say how many children have been treated by the state for gender dysphoria since January. Herc estimates it will lead to one less suicide attempt a year and cost about $150,000. In Salem, Dan Springer, Fox News. Okay, so let's break down their main concerns. So one, they contend that 15 is too young. Two, they think that individuals who are transgender should have parental consent. And three, they have problems with it being taxpayer-funded. So hopefully as I go through this video, I'm going to address all of their concerns. Now, first and foremost, before the video even starts, before they get to their segment, the Fox host tried to really frame the debate and prime viewers into thinking what he wants. He says, you know how impressionable and fickle they are. Well, sure, teens, they are uh, impressionable and fickle. But what he really wants to do here is downplay their gender identities. So when he says that they're impressionable, he wants you to think um, that, oh, this is how transgender people come up with their gender identity. They see people like Caitlyn Jenner and say, wow, I want to be like her. Maybe I should transition. But that's not the case. Now, he also says that they're fickle, implying that they're going to change their mind when it comes to their gender identity. But really... He doesn't understand that gender identity is a lot more nuanced than that. He really glosses over all of the nuance, and he doesn't understand gender identity. He has never maybe even read one study about transgender identity and transgender youth. So in the beginning of the segment, the narrator says that, well, teens can't smoke, they can't give blood or get a tattoo. So it should be the case that they also can't have this life-altering surgery. But this is really a false equivalence. You see, smoking, giving blood, getting a tattoo, these are not the same thing as having sexual reassignment surgery. See, I'm an individual who I have multiple tattoos, but when I have the desire to get a tattoo, it's not something that can actually um, affect me from a psychological standpoint. However, if it was the case that I was not happy with the gender identity that I was assigned at birth, this would have a ton of psychological consequences consequences, and it could potentially be even harmful to me. They want viewers to think, well, look, these are kids. They're impressionable. They're fickle. They can't get tattoos. They can't smoke. So why let them have sexual reassignment surgery? So now, Jen Burleton, who's a transgender activist who was interviewed in the video, who I actually met multiple times. She's a fantastic person. Um, she's saving lives with her work. Now, she states that parental consent is important because it could potentially save the lives of kids whose parents don't approve. Now, this is a point that Fox News doesn't even touch on. They completely disregard it, and I'm surprised they even included it in the video. Now, what th they don't really realize about this is that if you're an individual who is transgender and you want sexual reassignment surgery, which, by the way, that's the more bottom surgery, um, if you want sexual reassignment surgery, it's not that easy to just go and get it. Teens aren't sitting there like, well, you know, today I think I'm going to go to the mall. When I come back, I'm going to stop at Starbucks and get me a coffee. And then I might stop by the clinic, depending on how I feel, and get sexual reassignment surgery. That's not the way that this works. The way that it works is that they go through years and years and years of counseling until the psychiatrist that they have actually feels that they are confident in their um, gender identity 
and then he or she will allow them to have sexual reassignment surgery. It's not that easy to where if you decide that you're transgender on Tuesday, you get a, a sexual reassignment surgery on Thursday. That's just not the way it works, but they really want to fearmonger and get you to think that. Now, they cited a 2008 study who concluded that most children with gender dysphoria grow out of it after puberty. Now, is it the case that this study, among and others as well, actually prove that some children do grow out of their uh, transgender identity? Well, sure, there is, but there's also a ton of other studies that say the opposite and contradict this study. Now, it's also the case that other studies say that once children reach puberty, well, then at that point, the gender identity that they have at that point usually sticks with them for the rest of their lives. But what's true is that we don't actually have definitive research, so they can't state that most children grow out of their gender identity because the sample sizes of all studies thus far, they're just not big enough. So we don't have the evidence to make that type of widespread assertion. So now there are new studies that indicate that transgender youth don't grow out of their gender identity, most of them that is. So Huffington Post explains, over the study's six-year course, all the young adults were satisfied with their physical appearances and none of them showed any regrets about transition. The researchers found that GD was alleviated, which is gender dysphoria, and psychological functioning had steadily improved. Well-being was similar to or better than same-age young adults from the general population. Improvements in psychological functioning were positively correlated with post-surgical subjective well-being. Although both trans men and trans women appear to have benefited from the clinical approach, trans women showed more improvement in body image satisfaction and psychological functioning. Now they add... Significantly, the researchers believe that early medical intervention was not the only factor determining a successful outcome. They also credit a comprehensive multidisciplinary approach and a supportive environment as vital to helping these youngsters. So now throughout the segment, they also cite Dr. Paul McHugh, who works for John Hopkins Medical Center. Now, he called Oregon's policy child abuse, but... <laughs> The first thing that I thought when they brought this doctor on is, of course they're going to bring this doctor on. If you know anything about Paul McHugh, this is a anti-gay, anti-trans activist. He's a huge bigot, and he is very, very biased. So let me tell you about Paul McHugh. This is an individual who refers to homosexuality as an erroneous desire. He also filed an amicus brief arguing in favor of Proposition A on the basis that homosexuality is a choice. That tells you a lot more about him. He also describes post-surgical trans women as caricatures of women. That's just grotesque. He says, The Catholic sex abuse scandal was not about pedophilia, but about homosexual predation on Catholic youth. Um, so in other words, he thinks that homosexuality is the same thing as pedophilia, <laughs> and that all the uh, Catholic priests who molest a lot of boys, well, they weren't uh, pedophiles, they were homosexuals. This is what he thinks. This is the doctor who thinks this way. So he's also against sexual reassignment surgery, even for transgender adults. So he's just anti-choice, he's anti-freedom, and he's a transphobic bigot. So of course they're going to have him on because he's going to cite their talking points that they want. So what's the bottom line here? So, Fox News is ignorant to the facts. Nearly 50% of transgender people have thought about suicide, and one in four have attempted suicide. Now, with this fact in mind, hormone treatment and sexual reassignment surgery, this is a matter of life and death. So when you think about it in that light, you'll see that, yeah, if that's the case, if someone's going to kill themselves, if a teen is going to kill themselves if they can't get sexual reassignment surgery... I don't think that parental consent is necessary. Now, there's a lot of other studies I'm going to cite to you. 
A 2014 study found that hormone treatment therapy led to significant reductions of anxiety and depression after 12 months. A 2013 study finds that those on hormone treatment experience less stress and have lower blood cortisol levels, which is a key physiological marker of stress. Studies from 2009, 2011, and 2013 showed that cosmetic treatments, such as top surgery, where they either um, give you breast augmentation or they remove the breast um, with transgender men, this improved sexual and psychological well-being. Now, even though we don't have that much data on the long-term effects of hormone treatment therapy, a 2011 study argues that the benefits outweigh the risks given the evidence that we currently have. So if we take this into consideration, if it comes down to a teen's mental health, they should not have to have parental consent. Again, this is not something that, oh, well, I'm just going to go ahead and get sexual reassignment surgery tomorrow. <laughs> it's going to make my parents so mad. This isn't the case at all. It's a matter of life and death. You heard the statistics. I'm not going to cite them again because it really is depressing. So now I want to address their last point. Their problem is that it's taxpayer funded. Well, here's the deal. Treatment for this is extremely expensive, and it's also very necessary, as the aforesaid studies have indicated. So if it save li saves lives, then this is something that's necessary and very well should be taxpayer-funded. So Fox News really needs to get their facts straight, because this is something we have to take serious. Although gay, lesbian, and bisexual people were allowed to serve openly in the military as of 2011, when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, well... It's a fact that transgender people still are not allowed to serve openly in the military. However, that may soon actually change. So according to the New York Times, the Pentagon is moving to allow transgender people to serve openly in the military by early next year. They explain, Pentagon officials are to spend the coming months working out the administrative and legal changes needed to remove one of the final barriers to all Americans serving in the military. Defense Secretary Carter said in his statement on Monday that he was creating a working group that would have six months to assess what impact ending the ban would have on the military. The group will also help come up with ways to train troops to ensure a smooth transition, a senior defense official said. So now the good news is that, despite the formation of the working group, Mr. Carter left little doubt that the decision had been all but formally made to lift the ban. So this is absolutely fantastic. This is a step in the right direction for transgender equality. So Defense Secretary Ashton B. Carter says the regulation is outdated and harms the armed forces. Now that couldn't be more true. So currently, it's estimated that about 15,000 transgender people are serving in the military, and there are over 130,000 transgender veterans in the U.S. So very few currently are able to come out because the officer who they report to could potentially be hostile to their gender identity. So most of them have to conceal it. Most of them have to pretty much live a lie. So now this is really crazy because if you really think about it, how awful this policy is, we have 15,000 people right now that are willing to risk their lives and go overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan, and yet they can't even be open about their real gender identity. How insane is that? I mean, you could die for your country, but as long as you're not willing to deviate from the gender norms. That's absolutely ridiculous, and this is a violation of human rights. This shouldn't have ever been a policy to begin with, and it's weird to me that this wasn't um, repealed along with the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. This is a phenomenal move. I'm disappointed that it's going to take about six months, but at the same time, progress is progress, and unfortunately, progress is incredibly slow. Uh, but for us progressives, this is a huge move, and this is another huge win for the transgender community. 
Ken Ham, a young Earth creationist who also operates the Creationist Museum, recently wrote a Facebook post calling out Richard Dawkins. Now, in his post, he says that Richard Dawkins can't prove his atheism. Now, he went on to say, So Richard Dawkins, a man who is certain there is no God, is not totally certain about what's going to happen to him when he dies. And yet, he speaks with certainty as he tries to indoctrinate people to believe in his religion of atheism. He adds, the Bible clearly teaches that there are no atheists. God's word clearly states that he has put the knowledge of God within each of us. We all know there is a God. There are no atheists. Okay, so let's break down what he's saying. So, first and foremost, atheism is not a religion. If you actually look up the definition of religion, it says this. Religion is the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal god or gods. Atheism is quite contrarily the opposite of that. It's the belief that there is no superhuman controlling uh, the universe. So to quote Pendulette, he says, Atheism is a religion like not collecting stamps is a hobby. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, it doesn't make sense to say that atheism is a religion, and this is something that Christians and uh, other fundamentalist religious individuals try to uh, purport all the time, but it's just nonsense. And second of all, there is actually evidence that atheists exist. I am evidence that atheists exist because I identify as an atheist. I'm an individual who believes that there is not enough evidence to verify the existence of a supernatural being who's controlling the universe. It's not that I'm mad at God. It's not that I'm ignorant. It's not that I'm trying to reject God. I was indoctrinated with uh, Christianity, and I chose to become an atheist based on the facts, based on the empirical evidence. So I've been on both sides. You were indoctrinated into your religion, and you just stayed with it. So how can you say that atheism is a religion or that atheists don't exist if you've never I mean, seen the other side? You don't know if the grass is greener on the other side. So that's a really ignorant point to make. Now, the third point that's really going to cause Ken Ham to have cognitive dissonance is the fact that he's more of an atheist than he thinks. So it's estimated that about 4,200 religions exist worldwide. You see, Ken Ham is already an atheist to about 4,199 religions. Really, the only difference between myself and Ken Ham is that I took it a step further. I decided to believe in one less God than he does. Because look, I don't think there's really much people, if any at all, who believes in more than one religion, who believes in more than two religions. You're usually a uh, subscriber to one religion and that's it. So how can he say that atheists don't exist if he's disregarding all the other religions in the world that exist. So if you're a Christian, you're inherently an atheist to the Muslim religion. If you are a uh, Buddhist, then you're inherently rejecting Christianity. So now look, another argument that I've heard that people have um, tried to use against me is they say, look, Mike, here's the deal. I get that you're an atheist and I respect that, but what if you're wrong? You see, there's no consequences if you're a Christian. But if you're an atheist, well, the consequences, you're going to go to hell if you don't believe in God. So why not just believe just as a matter of security, just as an insurance policy? Well, okay, that may resonate with a lot of people. But the problem is that you're rejecting the other 4,199 religions that already exist. So if you really want to double down and make sure that you're ensured that whatever religion throughout the world is correct, you want to go to heaven in that particular religion, well, you're going to have to subscribe to all of these religions. And guess what? There's a lot of them. Some of them, some of them which would really be difficult to ascertain, uh, 
any type of information about because they're in more remote locations in the world. So atheism is not a religion. Ken Ham is wrong and atheists do exist. He is partially proof of that because Ken Ham, you are an atheist to 4,199 religions in the world. So you're going to have to wake up. Now here's, here's the main thing that I think is problematic. Ken Ham has a lot of people following him. All of these individuals are taking in his message, and I think that that's really scary because what he's pushing is misinformation. He's not a reasonable person. You can't present facts. You can't present empirical evidence and change his mind. This is evidence in the fact that um, when Bill Nye debated, debated him, he provided a whole plethora of information, and all Ken Ham really had to say was, oh, well, there is evidence that says this. It's in the Bible. Well, guess what, Ken Ham? That's fine that if you want to be a Christian, but one, I think that your misinformed belief shouldn't influence other people, and two, the Bible is not evidence. It was written a hundred years after Jesus had already supposedly died. It's not evidence. Just because there's an um, assumption or an assertion made in the Bible doesn't make that verifiably true. What is true is what we know from scientific research, from empirical studies. Ken Ham doesn't get that, and I think that he really is a foolish human for believing this type of nonsense, specifically that atheists don't exist. After 20 months of negotiations, the U.S., as well as five other countries, have struck a deal with Iran to severely limit their nuclear program and prevent them from getting nuclear weapons. So first and foremost, before I get into the details, I want to clear up the misinformation that's been spreading. So first of all, no, this deal does not make it easier for them to get a nuclear weapon. That's absolutely false. Now, Neoconservatives want you to think that this deal will actually allow them to produce a nuke because what they're doing is three things. They really have three goals. So one, they want to create a common enemy because they want us to continue to view Iran as a threat. Now, why is that the case? Well, they want a fearmonger because one, it helps their campaigns, and two, they actually want war with Iran because, well, war is very lucrative, and also it helps their donors who uh, want to fund their campaigns. The military-industrial complex does help fund their campaigns, and uh, defense contractors such as Halliburton and, uh, and whatnot. Now, even the neoconservatives in Israel, such as Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party, also beat that war drum because fearmongering helps their campaigns. So no, this deal is not going to help Iran get a nuclear weapon. With the current nuclear stockpile and whatnot that they have, well, it would take about a year for them to build a nuclear weapon, but what this does is it makes it so difficult that it would take 10 years for them to build a nuclear weapon, and what's more is that we have 24-7 access to inspect them. The, the IAEA will be in there making sure that they don't do this. So now let's, let's get into what's really in the deal. Iran has agreed to slash its stockpile of enriched uranium by about 98% from about 10,000 kilograms to less than 300 kilograms over 15 years. That uranium must be kept at a low enriched level, at 3.67% or less. That would prevent it from being used in a weapon over that period. So now the deal cuts Iran's nuclear centrifuges by about 66% over 10 years, from about 20,000 to 6,000. Those centrifuges are used to isolate the isotopes needed to develop nuclear-grade materials. Now this is very jargony, so I'll get to what it really means in a second. Furthermore, Iran will rebuild 
its Iraq-heavy water reactor so that it can no longer produce weapons-grade plutonium. The country also won't be allowed to build a new heavy water reactor for 15 years. Now, Iran underscored a promise to never seek a nuclear weapon. Giving the international community more leverage if it violates that pledge, Iran has also agreed to issue a statement that accounts for military aspects of the nuclear program. So when we put that jargon aside, what does it really mean? It means that they simply can't produce a nuclear weapon with that level of enriched uranium and that many centrifuges. It would take them 10 years. So, uh, as I stated, they can, however, utilize their remaining nuclear program for purposes of energy and science and whatnot. So there's no restrictions under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, and there's nothing in international law that says that you can't have a nuclear program for this purpose. So, here's the breakdown. What does Iran get? Well, they get the sanctions lifted on them. However, if they violate this deal, the sanctions go right back into place. And they don't want that to happen because over the years, this has really crippled their economy. Now, what do we get? Well, we get assurance that they're not going to build a nuke as well as unfettered access to their nuclear facilities. Now, what still needs to happen? Well, first and foremost, um, the Iranian parliament, as well as Ayatollah Khomeini, must approve of this deal, but seeing that they're an authoritarian regime, well, of course it's going to get approved. Now, Congress has 60 days to approve the deal here, um, or excuse me, they have 60 days to review the deal. Now, if they try to do anything to jeopardize this deal, President Obama has already agreed to veto anything that they might do. So, this is good news. Now, overall, what's the takeaway? This is a win for peace. This is a huge win for peace. President Obama found a diplomatic solution instead of resorting to war. I mean, even back to the Bush administration, the Bush II administration, George W. Bush, I mean, they were all beating the war drums. He referred to Iran as one of the axes of evil. Uh, Dick Cheney has consistently tried to uh, beat the war drums against Iran. John McCain, in his 2008 election, he actually was singing a song thinking it was funny, saying, bomb, 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 Iran, which was a parody of the, um, the Beach Boys' Barbara Ann song. So as you know, they've indicated what they want. They want war. But here's the deal. This is important because we've really soiled our relationship with Iran a lot. I mean, We've constantly intervened. We overthrew their democratically elected government. It's really our fault that they're this authoritarian. And what's more is that we need to rebuild our relationship because the upcoming generation of Iranians, well, they're not like their religious leaders. They are a lot more secular and they are a lot more Western-oriented and they are influenced by Western ideals and Western philosophy. So once this generation slowly but surely comes into power, well, they could be a new ally and potentially a stabilizer in the region, hopefully. Hopefully. I mean, that might be... A pipe dream, but look, here's the bottom line. What we got to do is we got to make sure that we achieve peace. This is what happened. This diplomatic solution achieved peace, and I think that's fantastic. You don't have to be worried. The neoconservatives um, in both America, Israel, and Saudi Arabia even, they're all fear-mongering, but what's the bottom line? This is about peace, and peace won today. In March, President Obama commuted 22 nonviolent drug offenders, and recently he's commuted 46 more, and he had this to say about it. Over the last few years, a lot of people have become aware of the inequities in the criminal justice system. The fact that we spend over $80 billion a year in incarcerating people, oftentimes who've only been engaged in nonviolent drug offenses. Right now, with our overall crime rate and incarceration rate both falling, we're at a moment when some good people in both parties, Republicans and Democrats, and folks all across the country are coming together around ideas to make the system work smarter, make it work better. 
and I'm determined to do my part wherever I can. That's one of the reasons why I'm commuting the sentences of 46 prisoners who were convicted many years or, in some cases, decades ago. These men and women were not hardened criminals, but the overwhelming majority had been sentenced to at least 20 years. 14 of them had been sentenced to life for nonviolent drug offenses. So their punishments didn't fit the crime. And if they'd been sentenced under today's laws, nearly all of them would have already served their time. I've made clear to them that re-entering society is going to require responsibility on their part, and hard work, and smarter choices. But I believe that, at its heart, America is a nation of second chances. And I believe these folks deserve their second chance. I also believe there's a lot more we can do to restore the sense of fairness at the heart of our justice system and to make sure our tax dollars are well spent even as we are keeping our streets safe. That's something I'm going to discuss tomorrow in Philadelphia, where I'm going to lay out some ideas for criminal justice reform, many of which are already getting bipartisan support. Together, we can make our community safer. We can spend our taxpayer dollars more wisely, and we can make sure that more of our citizens, even those who've made mistakes, have a chance to become productive members of society and contribute to this country that we love. Now at the NAACP, here are his thoughts on criminal justice reform. Over the last few decades, we've also locked up more and more nonviolent drug offenders than ever before for longer than ever before. And that is the real reason our prison population is so high. In far too many cases, the punishment simply does not fit the crime. That's why the second place we need to change is in the courtroom. For nonviolent drug crimes, we need to lower long mandatory minimum sentences or get rid of them entirely. Give judges some discretion around nonviolent crimes so that potentially we can steer a young person who's made a mistake in a better direction. So when he says that the crime doesn't match the punishment, look, that's 100% true. I mean, we live in a supposedly free society, right? I mean, we can drink alcohol in some states, we can smoke marijuana. So why is it the case that grown adults aren't allowed to put whatever substance that they want in their body? It's weird, right? I mean, doesn't that seem to violate the principle of freedom? So wouldn't it naturally just follow that um, that sentiment correlates with freedom? But I mean, if you think about that, then we're not as free as a society as we may want to um, tout ourselves as, and we are violating the principle of freedom. Now, let's look at the statistics, actually. So, the U.S. has more people locked up than any other country in the world, and that's including authoritarian regimes such as Iran or totalitarian regimes like North Korea. Now, over 95,000 inmates are locked up for drug charges. That's about 48.6% of the federal prison population. Now, of the 3.9 million citizens on probation currently, 25% of them were for drug charges. Now, of the 853,000 people on parole, 32% of them had a drug charge. Now, this does not control for individuals who have drug charges as well as other charges, such as theft and assault or 
and also a drug charge, that is. But when it comes to who qualifies as a non-violent drug offender, well, it's estimated that there are about 35,000, which makes up about 17% of the federal prison population. So the takeaway is that President Obama is doing a really fantastic thing here. One, he's making the right decision, and two, he's really controlling the narrative when it comes to criminal justice reform, and he's getting us to question the actual drug war because obviously it's a failure. It hasn't worked. It's led to more criminal activity in Mexico. Well, the cartel basically controls the entire state. Now, if you legalize drugs, well, that removes their monopoly. So he doesn't, um, well, a lot of people don't realize that um, legalizing all drugs or at least decriminalizing them would reduce crime. I mean, the best thing that we can hope for is to tax and regulate all drugs so that way we can fund um, drug prevention programs and education programs in order to reduce the number of drug users who are addicted. So this is a really fantastic thing that President Obama is doing and I 100% applaud him for it because this is what should be done. It's not only something that is practical, but it's just. Now I only hope that he speeds up the process and actually gets to all 30,000 before he gets out of office because at 46, a total of under 100 so far, well, you're only scratching the surface and you've really got to get going on this because these people shouldn't be locked up. Welcome to the Weekly Roundup, where I go over news stories you might have missed over the last week. This week, Caitlyn Jenner recently accepted her Arthur Ashe Courage Award and made a really profound speech. If you want to call me names, make jokes, doubt my intentions, go ahead. Because the reality is, I can take it. But for the thousands of kids out there coming to terms with being true to who they are, they shouldn't have to take it. It's not just about one person. It's about thousands of people. It's not just about me. It's about all of us accepting one another. We're all different. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And while it may not be easy to get past the things you always don't understand, I want to prove that it is absolutely possible if we only do it together. Look, I know I used it last week, but I really gotta bring back the slow clap again. Two Fox News hosts, Eric Bowling and Geraldo Rivera, recently clashed on The Five, and it escalated very, very quickly. You're equating Trump's comments with all immigrants. What he had said was, and we've talked about this quite a bit, is Trump's comments specifically pointed at illegals. I'm talking about the, the reaction to Trump. And you tell me that it's that it's not an immigration I th I response. I think uh, Jesse's right. I think that it is tapping into the into the it is the exploiting it is exploiting and sensationalizing from a guy who exploits and sen sensationalizes everything. <laughs> Are you really? talking to me? Yes. You're lucky that you're my friend. I'd knock you out right now. Well, that's we, absolute we BS. Take, we can take this up later. How are you saying that is absolute how, bogus? How are you saying okay. that Trump is you're exploiting? You're I exploit and sensationalize. What do you do? Where do you get your stuff from? I'm, I'm Corrado. I'm just right wing. You're, you're uh, saying that, that Donald is giving Trump you is exploiting right. okay, a woman's room. death. Get out. It's her death. All right. You, you're you're downplaying it. <laughs> okay, allow me to settle this debate for you guys. Look, you're all Fox News. You all sensationalize. You all fearmonger. You all embellish and you outright fabricate facts. You're not credible. So I don't know what you guys are all arguing over, and. This is what people actually think when they watch you. You're so dumb. 
You are really dumb. For real. The Boy Scouts of America recently moved to remove their blanket ban on gay scout leaders, and presidential hopeful Scott Walker had this to say. The policy protected the children and advanced scout values. Wait, what? The policy protected children and advanced scout values? How? Okay, so this is what he's implying. He's implying that gay people are threats to children? Now if that's not enough, Scott Walker also made a really interesting comment when it comes to the minimum wage. The left claims that they're for American workers and they just got real, really lame ideas, uh, things like the minimum wage. Instead of focusing on that, we need to talk about how do we get people the skills and the education, the qualifications they need to take on careers that pay far more than the minimum wage. That's well and great, Scott Walker, but there's just one problem with your argument. Even if 100% of the population was skilled and educated, there's not enough high-skilled jobs to go around. And there will always be a demand for low-skilled jobs, even if 100% of the population has the skills needed to get more higher-skill positions. So here's the question that we need to ask. Do we give the people working in low-skilled jobs a living wage, or do we allow them to remain in poverty even though they work sometimes full-time? It really seems like that's what Scott Walker wants, so I gotta have my buddy Steve ask him the question. What's his moral barometer? Well, that's our show. As always, you can comment down below if you have any political issues that you're passionate about and you want me to cover. And I want to also welcome all of our new subscribers again because I'm just really gr uh, glad to have you. Uh, but I will see you guys next week. I really hope that you enjoyed the show.